Mean Old Lion Media presents the history of being black. Welcome to the History of Being Black podcast. I'm your host, Jay Hall, and I am here with pro hair makeup artist, speaker, writer, and Gucci man advocate, Beishade. <laughs> you know, I was going to throw that in there. You know why I was going to throw that in there. After. <laughs> How you doing today? I'm doing good. Thank you for asking. Thank you for having me as well. What about you? I'm cool. I'm cool. I'm I'm down south um, working through this three temperature heat as in when the temperature is in the hundred plus. That's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> That's real. Where where are you in Texas? Now I'm in the Tennessee Valley. Emphasis on Valley. Okay. So I'm 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 literally in the middle of the six. Like by Chattanooga and all of that. Yeah. Yeah, you got it. Yep. That's where I'm at. So yeah, you know, like I told you, you know, with the with with, with the ball head, I gotta be careful because that sun just it'll give me that extra tan that I'm not, you know, looking forward to. So I, I gotta be careful with that. So yeah, I'm gonna just flat out just tell everyone who's listening, we met a week ago up in AURN studio. You were on the AURN podcast yeah. and when I first was doing my research, you know, I'm always going to be intrigued when I read the bio comes when somebody's from my hometown, Detroit. So when I first saw you off top, I was like, what up, though? We both was like, what up, though? But then um, throughout the conversation, your history and, and what you had to say and, how, and your passion, and we were having a moment. I just wanted to go more in depth into who Bay Sade is as a person because you have a hell of a journey and a hell of a story. And I wanted to be one of the first people, because I know you're getting ready to be out the door. You about to blow. I want to be one of the first people to get your story because I just felt like it was such a dope story. And me, maybe because I'm being biased because of where I'm from, but that's just what it is. And y'all just got to <laughs> deal with it at this moment. <laughs> you know what I mean? Y'all just got to deal with it. But yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to, you know, have that conversation with you. And, and so, you know, first off, what I wanted to do is really go into the story that you had kind of tagged just a little bit last week. But I want you, if you could break it down a little bit, because I, I put it in your bio, you're a Gucci man advocate. But the reason why I said that is because you have a Gucci man story and I love Gucci man stories. So can you break that down real quick? Okay, so when I was when I first moved to Atlanta, I had to be about 17, getting ready to be 18. And I didn't know how I was gonna make money. I had no idea how to monetize my gifts so that I was not in a situation where my money in commerce was based off of surviving. Okay. I didn't want to be a thief. I didn't want to be a prostitute. I didn't want to be a scammer. I needed to figure out a way to get that same money legitimately. So I started doing hair and makeup in a career-oriented kind of way. I had always done it for survival as a cash business in salons. But at this point, I was finally like, okay, I need to figure out how to get into the film union. I need to figure out how to get into these video shoots, et cetera, et cetera. So I got in commission to do makeup for the young lady Mac Breezy um, and Gucci for their song, um, I Think I Love Her. And long story short, I had not gotten paid in a sufficient amount of time. Like I had gotten there maybe like at three o'clock, two o'clock, and I was still there at 11 waiting on like $200. And he and Mac Breezy tore up production. Like, why haven't y'all paid this person? This person's supposed to been have had their money, stop playing, it's just like started knocking stuff over. And um, I always had a love and respect for the love and respect that he had for my business as a person of color at that time. And this was this was old school Gucci. This was this was the Gucci that everybody said was crazy. This is the Gucci that everybody felt unsafe around. This is the Gucci that you tightened up when you went around because you just did not know how he was going to react. But it was always love when he saw me. I was um really big into the strip club scene at the time, offering hair and makeup services to the dancers. And one of the um, I really believed in the hood aspect of the strip clubs in Atlanta at the time because that's really where the actual Atlanta strip club patrons really went. The old school ones, you know, your um, your Onyx, your um, Dirty Rats, your Flame, um, Blue Flame, 
um, not quite Magic City, you know, those are more mainstream clubs. But I mean, it was this specific one. Um, what's the name of that club on Columbia Drive? I can't even think of it specifically, but this specific club, he used to always just come in and just sit there at the bar. He would never get any dances. He would never really talk to anybody. And he was so consistent in that specific club. And his name was so known around the city for being crazy that we were told by management, don't talk to him. Don't speak to him. Don't say, hey, leave that man alone because he might pop you with a bar stool. That's just how old school Gucci was. But I always loved it, loved him, um, respected him because of the love and respect he gave me as a young Black entrepreneur. And I'll always celebrate that. I love a great Gucci story because Gucci has probably had one of the... <laughs> and it's so timely because I feel like Gucci is one of those um, individuals where he's probably had one of the most significant growths that we've seen, like as far as witness. Cause like you said, old school I Gucci. Agree. These these kids today would never know about old school Gucci and, and what we were hearing and the legend of them. And to see him now right. actually just released a song right. about being married and making money, you know, and, and being clean and drinking water. Like it's it's such a transition, a healthy transition that I that I love to see. When you see a transition like that from being there from the beginning and you see that what how does that resonate with you as a person so i think what was most powerful about that metamorphosis and about that evolution is that we get to see you know a nuanced timeline exclusive to a person of color who goes from the binaries in the corners of our culture that are not as celebrated or respected and to go there into a new era, into a new space where you're seen as wholesome, I think is like the caveat of this story, in my personal opinion, that Black men specifically can take something from and black women also because Keisha K. Or you cannot not you can't talk about who new Gucci is without talking about who his wife was to him for all of those years before he even asked for her hand in marriage. Um, so I think that from a traditional standpoint, this really helps to I identify and acknowledge the idea of you can do your thing on your own as a man, but if you get you a black femme figure behind you that you love, respect, and honor, the the positive consequence behind that is going to be amazing. And I think that that's the story that I, as an individual, take from it because we all go through so many transitions in our lives. We all go through from one point to another, some positive, some negative, but it's a joy to see somebody make it because the position, a position like that oftentimes calls for death. And we, as people of color, know what those strikes are. You know, we kind of breeze onto that conversation at AURN last week during the City Limits podcast. Um, but with all due respect, dead or in jail before 18, probably dead or in jail before 21, probably dead or in jail before 25, probably. So to have been in such risk for so long and to have made it is what I enjoy and what I respect about that story in my own identity. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's no secret yeah, we both come from a city where that being dead before 18 is a real thing. I remember my first email was Jayhawk25, because I really did not think I was going to live to be 25. And I wasn't in the streets. I wasn't a gangster. Yeah, it was just really? very common of all of us. Yeah. Um, I lost my first friend. He was 18. Well, I lost people before then, but my first partner, we were both 18. He, he uh, was murdered before graduation and we both went to St. Cecilia, as you know, on Livernois. <clears throat> My man Adonis. And so growing up like that was something that was a real thing um, in that feeling, in that space. When you think about before you got to Atlanta and when you was growing up for those 17 years and feeling how you feel and having the thoughts that you had, because you you spoke about this last week, but if you can kind of retell that, you were a very self-aware individual. 
But growing up in a city like that, that doesn't offer a lot of that doesn't offer a lot of space for that. How was that for you growing up in that space? Um, what's interesting about that type of question? How was it? And what's unique about it for me, in my experience, is the idea of that I never really seen it. I never realized how much risk I actually was in until after I made it through. And it goes to show you how fight or flight could really do a number on your mentality and really do a number on your perception if you are not aware enough or if you don't have the toolkit to dig in that identifies the level of risk, the tiers of risk. So for me, I was just going along to get along and the idea of being rooted in belief of self is what carried me. I didn't know how I was going to become successful. I didn't know how I was going to be positioned in a way that I would be able to change my life. But I believed in myself. What's interesting about that word believe and the idea of belief, that has truly changed for me like over the past few months because I didn't believe it. I knew it. You know, belief is something in which you don't have a point of reference and it's blind faith associated with it. I knew myself. I knew my roots. I was very aware of my standing in my position. And I think that was slash is the nuance that created healthy communication within self to help me navigate thoroughly, even though I was in a lot of damn danger. Yeah. Was makeup one of the first interests you had in the arts? So no, music was. Makeup <laughs> makeup and beauty was a survival tactic for me. Okay. Um, so I actually was supposed to be a rapper or a singer or an actress or something like that. I went to the Winers Academy. I went to DSA. Like, I was a mosaic kid. That's what I did. I was, I, I was, I'm a star. But when I became marginalized, marginalized youth, you know, out there on those streets by myself at 15, 16, I was smart enough. I want to say this differently. What's interesting about my experience is that a lot of my peers who ended up in that same position did not ever have a mother. Their mothers were dead or in jail or raised by their grandparents or in foster care, et cetera. And even though there were certain things that my mother did not do the best, seeing her go to work, seeing her be a scholar, seeing her use her mind to forge her future really trickled down to me. So when it came time for me to figure out how the hell I was going to eat, how was I going to take care of myself? How was I going to make this happen at 15 in Detroit? The first thing that came to my mind was I could go and do hair and makeup. At that time, I was already arching my own eyebrows. I was already doing makeup for like the high school musical productions and plays and different things. So I understood textural concepts. I understood skincare and all of these different things, but not to serve other people. That was for me. In my mind, I wanted to know how to do my own hair and makeup so that once I reached my stardom that I could save a couple of dollars by not having to pay somebody $100,000 a year to pay me, to me and paying them to help me look my best. So that is what, that's where my love for hair and makeup came in. I just wanted to be beautiful. But when I was out on those streets, I needed a trade. I needed some way to legitimately get cash in hand. Because again, this was 2005. I didn't have a work permit. And even if I did, you know, my mother and I wasn't on an accord where I could go and have her sign off of it. And even if I had of, you know, you could only work 10 hours a week legally or 15 hours a week at that age. So makeup was the safest option to prostitution. I had two options, sex work or the arts in beauty. So I stuck with that and it saved my life. I got stuck in it though. But you know, such is life. Such is life. That's a real thing. And to those who don't know, because you reference it a couple of times, how did you end up in the streets so young? But well, I'm a black trans woman and I have the 
unfortunate, nuanced experience as a lot of people like myself, you know, who are denounced and put out on the streets. You know, I have that history and it calls for me to grow up extremely fast. But in those experiences, especially in 2005, it was only about two or three things for us to do. Sex work, scamming, or we'll just say sex work, illegal activity, or go to school and get a job. You know? So that's what I did. That's real. So when you were out there in the streets, I remember we were talking and you said that you had also was in boarding school and you came back knowing a little bit more about yourself. Is that mm-hmm. right before you went to Atlanta? Is that right before you went to Atlanta or you went to Atlanta shortly after that? So it was about two and a half, almost three years before I got out of Detroit. I spent three years from pillar to post. I spent three years squatting. I spent three years still in the eat. You know, I wanted to survive so bad. I can even remember I got a, um, a, a confidant, if you will, my homegirl, Alexis. She's from Detroit originally. I vividly remember doing her house and uh, doing her makeup in a house that I was squatting in that I used my blow dryer to warm the house up with because it was the dead of winter. And we still talk about this to this day. Like, girl, you remember you did my makeup in that abandoned house that one time? <laughs> I needed the money and she needed her makeup done. You know what I'm saying? So um, it was only a few different options, but it was, it, it was about a three year time frame. It was from 2000, like mid 2005 to the end of 2007, early 2008. Once I got to the South. And how did the Atlanta opportunity like, spent, like present like itself? I, like I was like, I spent, I was living in a homeless shelter in Atlanta when Obama won. Like, I watched Obama win from the TV in the staff's office because, I mean, I was one of the only ones, if not the only one, that you truly could tell in that shelter. I had no business being there, okay? So, like, I had the unique experience of the staff humanizing my experience in a way that they dehumanized my other peers in that position. So I was one of one that was allowed to be in the staff space, the staff area, et cetera. Everybody else had to be on lockdown after seven. So when he won, I was in the back behind the staff desk, cheering and parading when Obama won, just to kind of give you a concept of where I was at that time and the circumstance. So like, yeah, it was, it was, it was early 2008 when I moved to Atlanta because I went to Alabama first. I was in Alabama for like three or four months first. My dad's side of the family lives in rural Alabama. And I went there first and got a job at Mac and transferred my job from Mac to Atlanta. So I was living in a homeless shelter working at Mac and nobody knew. (laughs) Yeah, that Obama, everybody I know who remembers where they were when Obama became president, Unfortunately, the people I know, it there's some sort of mixed feelings they have because I know people who got in the car crash after that. Like I ended up getting evicted like two months later after Obama got elected. So it was like a wow. proud moment, but it was also real life stuff was happening. And you know, you were in Atlanta and two thousand, like you said, eight Atlanta at that time was considered like a Mecca, still being considered a Mecca. Is that what kind of brought you to that direction? Like, yo, Atlanta is where I need to go? Yes. Well, I mean, not that. I decided I was moving to Atlanta in 2004. It was <laughs> it was Sierra and Ludacris, oh, that made me want to move to Atlanta, if I'm being completely honest with you. That summer style, gay loud, old school, coming down in a different color, will, will, will. It was that. <laughs> I was like, I have to move to Atlanta, period. Like, I was 14 years old. Like, I can remember being in boarding school on top of the pool, the pool table, acting like Sierra, popping and doing all that stuff that she was doing on top of the car at that time. I was hell-bent on moving to Atlanta because you got to keep in mind, I, I never really saw... I, my mother and I had issues, but I never really saw her put me out on the streets. I'm going to be honest with you. Like, I, I never saw that coming. So in my mind, I was still headed for stardom. 
You understand what I'm saying? And during that era, we're talking about Sierra, Ludacris, them franchise boys. Oh my God. Like I could just, I could keep going on. Young Jock, um, Yin Yang Twins. Um, I could go on. Everybody was winning at that time. And Atlanta was the place to go to create music. They was putting out some fire back to back to back to back to back to back to back in that era. So that was what made me want to move to Atlanta. But I didn't get there until five years later. Four years later, five years Mm. later, I spoke that into existence. My mother had a friend that she went to high school with. And I can vividly remember her coming up and maybe 2003. Um, no, it had to be 2004 because it was between the time after I had come home from boarding school. And I was like, I'm moving to Atlanta. And I was 14. I hadn't turned 15 yet. Like, I'm moving there. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm getting to Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a that was a dope error that you bring it up because I was I was in college at that time and I was in DC and I was looking at Atlanta for a short bit, like, yo, is this, is this where I need to go? Like, you know, everybody, like you said, the right. music and everything. I was an intern every, every, that whole vibe was just kicking off. Jeezy was kicking off, you know, all of that yes. was kicking off. And to those who don't know, you know, I, I want this to be noted. The high school you went to, my God sister went there. You went to DSA. They put out, you having the mentality that you're going to be a star. That is where in Detroit you put your kid. If you feel like they got that potential. Because those right. who don't know, Aaliyah went there. Aaliyah, Aaliyah went there. I think Aaliyah was the first one. Yep, Tia Marie went there. Big Sean went there. We have a couple of opera singer alum- uh, opera singer alumni who are doing amazing yeah. in Spain right now. One of my cousins um, is doing so good. At VSA was where you sent your kid to be a star, you know? That's it. If you wanted your school, your child to be in academia, you sent them to either Renaissance or CAS, namely CAS. Yep. But if you wanted them to be a star, they went to DSA, and that's just what it is. They went to DSA. That is, that is the truth. That is the truth. So when you got to Atlanta, and you was working at Mac, though, were you still trying to cut demo? Were you still trying to do music? Yes, I was. I did not stop the my idea of going into music. Until I want to say 2000, maybe 10, 9, because my career in makeup really took off. In that time, it wasn't a lot of us and it wasn't celebrated. I'm talking about pre Chris Brown with blonde hair. I'm talking about pre strippers being celebrated. I'm talking about pre Love and Hip Hop franchise, pre Real Housewives of Atlanta franchise. You know, so when it came down to music, I had it in my mind that that's where I was still going to go because there wasn't really a point of reference for being a black makeup artist at that time, because that's not something that anybody wanted to do. And it did not go further than Mac for anyone of our listeners or even yourself. If you think about it, remember back to 2008 to 2010, if you wanted your makeup done or if you wanted to send a girl to go get her makeup done, you gave her $50 and she went to Mac. That was where makeup artistry started and ended at that time, especially in black culture and black community, because so many of us, there were only a few of us who knew about the union and uh, only a few of us who knew about SAC AFTRA and all of these different things. Um, so I held on to that idea for a while until I got picked up by an agency and makeup, like really just started to pay my bills. And again, it turned into a fight or flight situation. Cause I just never wanted to be homeless again. So, you know, my dreams took a back seat because I still, what's interesting was, is that, the only thing that I had to sacrifice was the idea of being a musical star or a musical act because I still was a star in beauty, okay? I still gained a lot of notoriety in beauty. So it didn't, the version of me that believed that I would have possibly died or would have never made it as far as I did was just okay to be alive and okay to be living a pretty good life, you know, being able to purchase a home before 25, being able to buy my dream car, cash, brand new, a Mini Cooper from America, from, you know, that American job movie from back in the day or whatever it was called. The, 
I don't know. But I wanted a Mini yeah. Cooper. Bad. So I was okay with my life, and I didn't really need a whole lot of extra. So I got into writing. So I did a lot of songwriting. Um, I did a lot of background vocals for a couple of years. And then it just kind of fizzled out. You know, next thing I knew, I had been doing makeup for 12 years. <laughs> I was just about to ask you, what type of music were you doing? Was you rapping, singing, both? I was doing some of everything because, I mean, I'm I'm classically trained, so I know how to sight read. Um, so I I grew up wanting to sing opera or wanting to do something that was esteemed by the wealthy. Okay. I either wanted to be an opera singer or I wanted to be in R&B. Um, but it what's interesting about it is that like my love for music comes from gospel music and comes from music that gives you a feeling. So I wanted to create something where I gave people goosebumps and whether that was with my words, whether that was with my riffs, whether that was with my you know, production. Um, so some of everything, you know, a little bit of rap, a little bit of R&B, um, even some jazz, because I'm really good like at scatting and vocal arranging and all of those different things. I'm not really sure. It's definitely multifaceted, though. Like, the best way that I could describe the type of artist I was, remember Jamie Foxx and that lady um, I, she's an in vogue now. She's one of the in vogue members now. Remember his homegirl at Jingles Three Thousand and how they had a style for everything. Slightly, yeah. That's slightly. the best. That's I the, do know. That's the best way that I could describe. That's the best way that I could describe how I was. Like, you want to hear something country? I'll give you that. You want to hear something, you know, Southern Bayou? I'll give you that. Gospel, hip hop. Like, I'm just a music lover. So. I'm not really sure because I didn't have the privilege at the time of evolving that idea. But, you know, it ain't over yet. <laughs> what why why was gospel music such a base for you? I think it's the it was the technicalities of it. The the technicality of it and the ability to influence in that kind of way. Even now, as someone who doesn't subscribe to any specific religion, I still love gospel music to this day because I feel like it's among one of the most powerful vibrations when it comes down to music, when it comes down to hurts and vibrations and being able to manipulate matter with your sound, I think is something that is quite exclusive to gospel folk. Like, it's very few secular singers whose instrument can manipulate matter. I can't think of the last mm. time a secular singer gave me goosebumps. And th those types of people are not made anymore. You feel me? Like, those secular vibration, secular high vibrational people are like Shantae Moore, Kelly Price, Fantasia, mm. um, Jasmine, um, Carl Thomas, Faith Evans, you know, the only one that I can think of from this era is probably Dondria or even um, this this young lady, Jade Nova. I'm not sure if you've heard of Jade before, but Jade is awesome as well. Um, but I like matter shifting vibrations musically. Did you ever have any complex feelings with, you know, they don't have the best reputation as far as the gospel community and their views with the LGBTQ plus IA community? Um, not really, no. And what's interesting about that is it's effed up. And me and me and um DJ Liquid, um, one of the founders of the festival that I'm hosting this weekend for the 50th hip hop anniversary, DJ Liquid, and I were talking about the idea of using your tokenizations to your benefit to be successful in spaces that were not created for you. So I was a, at the time I was a token. I was tokenized. So I never felt uncomfortable because I had a skill set that them folks benefited from. So the same rules did not apply for me as they did for others. And I used my tokenization to work to my benefit when it came down to creating space 
among church people. Is that the same feelings or same approach that you take with hip hop? Because you talk about celebrating the 50 years of hip hop and hip hop itself has had not the best reputation when it comes to the community. Um, I don't really think about it that way, to be honest with you. Like, I don't feed into this narrative that somebody is in control of something that came from my historical genetics of blackness. Okay? Hip hop started with a person of color. So I don't have to ask. I don't need permission to come in a house that's mine. So to be quite honest with you, no, I'm a lot more radical now than I used to be. Whereas back in the day, I used my token. Now I don't use my token as much, like, because I I live in it and I can't do anything but be myself. So these days, I just focus on being valuable because value cannot be ignored, okay? And yeah, that's the best way that I could put it. Value cannot be ignored. I'm welcome here. And I don't have to ask you to be here. I don't have to ask you to feed into something that our culture is going to benefit from. So I just think that nowadays, because I'm no longer impressionable, I'm much more radical with the fact that I kick these doors down or you're going to open them and say, welcome, which one you want? Two options. Yeah, I get with that. Considering the fact that hip hop itself, the basis of it is rebellion. So, I mean, you Mm -hmm. having that rebellious approach to it, it makes sense to me. It definitely makes sense to me. You know, but also if we talk, if if we speak about, if if we speak about nuances, if I may, I think it's important to note that much like black folk, Unfortunately, in general society, hip hop has created this nuance to where they celebrate and respect everybody, but let's say the LGBTQIA plus community, the same way that we in our, let's call it blackhood, or in the experiences as people of color, we don't we don't give hail to people who are born with disabilities. We don't give hell to people who are born blind. We don't give hell to anybody whose biological makeup, psychological makeup, and sociological makeup is different from the status quo of normalcy, and we create space for it. And even for people who don't align in that, y'all let Eminem through. You feel me? You let Iggy Azalea through. You let Jack Harlow through. You let Mac Miller through. And I could keep going and keep going and keep going. And I think that we're at a place where there needs to be queer representation, trans representation, gay representation, bisexual, bisexual, transsexual representation that trumps white people or anybody who's not black in hip hop. That's my personal radical opinion about it. If these people who are not from the culture can then come in and benefit from the culture. It's no way that you're going to stop or remove the queer acts or the trans acts or the intersex acts, especially if they're black. Oh, that's powerful. That's powerful. So, I mean, you were in Atlanta doing your thing. What brought you to the New York area? Because I'm a mainstream girl. Like, I have, I have mainstream dreams. And... Atlanta is dope. Atlanta is cool. But I accept that Atlanta has a ceiling for a girl like me. Okay? We spoke about token tokenization earlier. I'm a token Black. And I'm going to use my tokenization in white spaces more so now than not. It's not a challenge for me to stay. Atlanta is home. That's home. You feel me? But I want to be in these spaces, in these boardrooms, in these communities that have been gentrified, in these spaces where there's no representation, because New York is the hub, for the most part, for a lot of corporations. I've been here off and on for 15 years, so things have definitely changed. But New York, my reasoning for coming to New York, the actual reason was because Max headquarters was here at the time in 2010 and they were opening up a service only store to where we didn't have to sell makeup. We only provided the makeup service and I had a boyfriend at the time. So 
I was I moved here for my man at the time, and I moved here because I was moving up the corporate ladder with Matt Cosmetics. That was why I that's why I came. No, that's dope. So what, when did the transition for you, or has it always been that when you started to become this outward voice, though, not just for yourself, but for the community? When did that happen? Um, when I lost male privilege, you know, like what I'm getting ready, my, my response is getting ready to be with the response that I'm about to make is the most challenging part of my entire transition. And because I experienced so much success prior to medically transitioning, my socialization into manhood prior to being medically aligned with biological womanhood as closely as possible, that socialization does not go away. And it's probably like my only regret, even though it wasn't really my choice, but you don't go from being who I was from a black gay male perspective socially, the way that people receive you to being a black trans woman and not feel anything. And it becomes even more nuanced if you have the privilege of being passable. If you have the privilege of walking outside and and you don't have to say I'm a woman because the world sees it, it becomes way less about being trans and everything about being a woman. And that's interesting. We didn't really get to that part of the conversation in the podcast last week, but this is an interesting, again, nuance is the word of the year. It's an interesting nuance in that reality because once the world sees you as a woman, Oh, you have to buckle up. And as someone who knows what it feels like to have benefited from the patriarch, as someone who knows what it feels like to be inherently immersed in massager noir, there was no way that I could have that hard shift into Black womanhood and not begin to open my mouth because my issues, for the most part, unless they're trans-censored, have nothing to do with trans identity. I'm going through what my mama, my aunties, my grandmothers, my sisters, my my cousins that I grew up with are going through. And I don't think that what a lot of trans women understand is that you'll never be safe until cis women are safe. And that's a hard truth. If you are transitioning to be recognized as a woman, love, You are not going to be safe until your mama is safe. You ain't got no business at the store at three o'clock in the morning if your mama can't go to the store at three o'clock in the morning. You don't have have no business walking through that group of dudes with stretch pants pulled up to your neck expecting safety if your mama can't be safe doing doing those things. So I began to speak out more once I got to a place where my experiences were no longer nuanced in trans identity, because that's not my experience, which I think is unique because it is a privilege to pass the same way. It was a privilege to pass when black women who were light skinned were trying to pass for lack of a better term, the issue could get you killed, you know? So in 2022, 2021 ish, I started to realize that because I was tokenized, that gave me the ability to speak to cis heteronormativity in ways that the girls who are not perceived as women are able to do. And Erica Badu always says, what good do your words do if they can't understand you? They're not listening. They don't care. So for me, it was important for me to have that voice because most biological women that I come into contact with see me as their sister in ways that I know not all trans girls have that privilege. So it just seems like a no-brainer to be visible as a Libra that I am, to be a voice for girls like me and to help filter the idea of what it means to be humane in cis-heteronormative spaces. So that's why the loss of male privilege and the results of the world seeing me as a woman and that lack of safety has positioned me in a way where I feel crazy if I say nothing, because I understand 
what my mama, my auntie, and my grandmother went through in ways that I could have never understood before now and in ways that she'll never get. How did that or did that understanding do anything with Mm -hmm. your personal relationships with your family? Ask me differently. I'm going to hold on to that. Could, Could you elaborate? First of all, I love when you do that. You did that last week. And I was like, I'm going to start borrowing that. So I just want to let you know I'm going to start borrowing that. I'm going to quote you. I'm going to start borrowing that. <laughs> Ask me differently. So I'm just going to let you know that. When you said you, you started to recognize about how um, you can pass, and, you know, in womanhood and understanding your privilege, you went from one shift to the next. Did okay. that do anything with your relationship with your own mother? Because you too were on right. the odds about your life. Did that do anything with that? No. Honestly, interestingly enough, my relationship with my family went to unimaginable, unfortunate depths when it came down to taking my transition very seriously because everybody was aware that I was transitioning or that I had that desire to, especially after my mother put my behind out. But we had a conversation last week, you and I, um, on the podcast about how I had to make that executive decision in 2005 that transitioning was not the best decision for me to do at that time if I wanted to live, okay? So what ended up happening was those 10 years that I spent as a celebrity hairstylist and makeup artist, I became celebrated, so my family started celebrating me. They was cool with the idea of having a gay son or a gay grandson or a gay cousin once they realized back in the day that I was a woman because they that's just something that simply that they did not want. So again, as I said, I became celebrated and recognized even by them in ways that I had never seen during that era of success. But as soon as I transitioned, like that, like clockwork, So not really. What's interesting is that I think that I'm in a place right now where those levels of understanding are starting to be publicized against my will in positive ways. So I'm sure they are aware and I'm sure that it'll probably have impact going down the line, but not yet. No, that's real. And do you recall the moment as far as you being a voice where you first spoke out, was it something that you spoke out about publicly? Like, were you online? Were you at a gathering? Were you at a, you know, was there an incident? Like, for example, I remember when I was, uh, I made my transition to my career when Trayvon Martin was murdered and it was during the re-election of Barack Obama because I was on radio at that time okay. in Fort Wayne, Indiana, if you can imagine. Like, so you can imagine what that experience okay. was like down Fort there. Fort Wayne, of so, all places. Right, of all places. <laughs> and that that began my transition to be like, yo, I'm about to go back to my writing. I want to go back to being this voice or whatever. Do you recall, was there any kind of um, significant moment culturally that made you say, I'm going to speak out about this? Or did you just start going on IG Live? So what's interesting is, is that I, before I transitioned, was always for the girls. And I'm speaking about biological, I'm speaking about women at large. I was always for biological women, trans women, older women, younger women. Like I was the quintessential gay, if you will. You know, like that one that you, if you had a wife, you didn't think twice about her being naked around me because you knew I was going to keep her safe. For lack of better terms, I probably was a socialized eunuch at that time. For for you or who those who may not know what eunuch is, in the Bible, they speak to these individuals who were born biologically male and for one of three reasons were castrated and positioned to protect females. So what ended up happening for me I had always brigaded on behalf of the girls. I was always, always there to protect them. Once I transitioned, the very first thing that happened where I was like, okay, my friends are so ignorant. My peers are so ignorant was the tampon issue. Trans men wrote tampox, tampex or whoever, maybe about five years ago and said, hey, we are trans men. We have somebody autonomy that is related to the female ex- experience, but it gives us 
dysphoria or whatever we said makes us feel uncomfortable when we go to purchase pads or feminine products, so to speak, and they're marketed to women only, pink boxes, female symbols, etc. The trans man who made that assertion was Cher's son, who is a trans man, and they honored it, and they changed the female symbol, changed the marketing, and the world attacked trans women. And it had nothing to do with trans women. Trans women don't menstruate, even if we do have vaginas or are post-op trans folks. We don't have ovaries. We don't shed the lining, the inner lining of ourselves. That's not something that happens. And it just gold, it just went to show the internalized transphobia that folks really truly have for trans women, specifically black trans women. And it was that was the very first time that I started swinging on people digitally. And the first time I started distancing myself, like watching my friends shares and seeing how they were responding to social issues and just like calling them out, like unfriending them and, and then writing them and say, hey, I just unfriended you and I want you to know why. This is disgusting and da 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 da, da. Because I remember when you was on Section 8. I remember when y'all wasn't eating without food stamps. I remember when you got pregnant by that dude who we told you to stop sleeping with because he was putting his hands on you. We have all of these different issues socially that we overlook as people of color and say nothing about whatsoever. And that is what made me upset because we got to stop attacking each other and start being a little bit more logical so it was over that tampon issue. That was that was that was the 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 first pin that fell for me where I was like, okay, I'm gonna start talking. <laughs> nah, that's dope. I mean, what is it about people keep what why do you think it always goes back to women? I mean, you you gave a very clear description of the origin, where it came from, but why does the anger and dissatisfaction always goes back to women in some form in that? Well, because like, it's just like Malcolm X said, you know, Black women are the most disrespected individuals, okay? And I don't have the why. I love that you asked me that question because I always say what I'm getting ready to say in these ways. I don't have the why, and frankly, I don't give a damn why, okay? Because when we're talking about who, what, where, why and how when it comes down to oppression i don't give a damn i only care about what happened okay the same way if your child was hit and killed by someone who hit them somehow by running a stop sign it could very much so be jay hall that that i dropped my hot coffee in my lap and reflexes caused me to drop down real quick and i missed that stop sign and killed your child but guess what you don't give a damn why you only care about what happened and that your baby is gone so i don't know why i can't give that e answer why i only know and have grown to learn that it is what is the problem? The problem is that Black women are the most disrespected, the most unsafe, the most at risk. And when you align with womanhood, you take that on. That's just what it is. That's what comes with, that's what comes with it. You know, there's a saying that I love called that goes, you know the story. You know the story. That's the way it goes. So I don't really know why, but I do know that Black women are just not seen as precious cargo in the ways that white women are or the ways that Indian women are or the ways the others, they just, they just aren't, you know? Even when we talk about the crazy rates of, like, death due to childbirth, you know, for the mother and the child, they're not seen as humans in health. They're not seen. Yesterday was Black women's. Yesterday, the day before, was Black women's equal pay day. They're not seen as your equal in workspaces. They're not seen as somebody's auntie, somebody's mama, somebody's grandma. When you see her and her voluptuous body walking past and she's alone and you catcalling her hanging out of the side of your window. But that's not something you're going to do to Karen. You don't do that to Mei Ling. 
You're not doing that to Pocahontas. You're only doing that to Shaniqua. You're only doing that to Rhonda. You're only doing that to Ashina. You're only doing that to Sade. Because you're not doing that to Amy. You're not doing that to Burka. You're not. <laughs> so I don't know why. I just know what is. Yeah. Re- 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 Rebecca doesn't get, Becky doesn't get bothered. Is is just the truth of it. I see and the I, I, I see the wheels that. turning. Oh, in your yeah. head, you in know. your mind. I'm you watching know. them turn. Yeah. You know, you know, yeah, it is. It is. It, Cause my wheels are turning because when you spoke about learning and what you would and you and you know, you very much so I remember that last week, you you were very much so putting emphasis on like learning on the ING, like what you're continuing to learn. And this, the conversation of trans women versus quote unquote real women always keeps resurfacing like every 19 months or whatever. Yes, it does. What is your what what is your take on that? Ooh, well, for the sake of not being redundant, I'm gonna paraphrase what I said a couple of minutes ago, but I have a, a second part to it in lieu of what you asked me. First of all, there's going to always be a lack of safety when it comes down to the nuanced experiences of what it's like to be a woman. But where it gets interesting and where it gets crazy at is when people begin to police everybody's experiences. I'm not quite sure what some trans women hope to gain by being divisive. And I'm not quite sure And this is my second part for the record. And I'm also not quite sure what biological women are looking to gain by policing experiences that they're not even comfortable with. And I think that that's the part of this that upsets me. Okay? Because trans women do, they, they are wrong at times. There are certain things that are said that incites I-N-C-I-T-E-S, incites violence, the way you incite a riot, okay? However, biological women are not talking and being honest about what goes on at roundtables of girls enough for me, and that's what's pissing me off because it comes across as very fake. Y'all dog y'all uteruses. Y'all don't like y'all periods. Y'all, y'all don't, y'all don't, y'all have so many different experiences that come with being a woman that is not celebrated and by you until the value is either seen and celebrated by another party or until there is another party who seemingly is being celebrated in ways that you feel you never were. So it creates an unhealthy cycle for the oppressor, the oppressed becoming the oppressor. I have been going back and forth with biological women for days since the Jess Hilarious debacle. And my clip with Flame Monroe is going viral on TikTok right now. Because there's this narrative, and I'm going to use I statements, that I and girls alike are trying to erase females' experiences, biological women's experiences. But the best way that I can say this is the same way being pro-Black don't make you anti-white and we can celebrate our Blackness without talking about alabaster people at all is the same way I can be pro-trans and not anti-biological woman. Pro-trans don't mean anti-biological women the same way pro-Black don't mean anti-white. And what's crazy about it is that If you really go deep into that nuanced statement I made and really let it settle and land, you'll understand clearly and plainly how Black women and Black men are turning into massa. Because you get it. You get it when these people are telling you being pro-Black is racist. You get it. When you like, are you crazy? No, I can love myself. No, we're not even talking about you. We're talking about us. You get that nuance then. 
So it's very interesting to sit back and see the exact same mechanism of oppression be utilized. And I think that that is the innermost issue, in my opinion, as it relates to what we're facing between biological women and trans women. Because even if trans women are wrong, they're not the ones doing the oppression. That's what makes cis, het folks dead ass wrong in this situation to me, especially Black ones, because you're utilizing the mechanisms that were used against your mama, your daddy, your grandma. And what you only get it when your Blackness is at risk? That's not cool. I get that. I get that. I just got, I got two more. One of the things I often come across is the curious people, you know, the people who are, um, they're not anti anything, but they are living in this world of confusion. However, they are fearful to ask questions because they don't want to be labeled as being transphobic. Do you feel that that word sometimes can be weaponized and it should not be used for people to be learning or people should just learn how to learn better, if that makes sense? Can you ask me differently? <laughs> like we- weaponized by who? Weaponized by the just 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 specify that for me. Weaponized by the trans community or weaponized by across the table? I say across the table right now. Absolutely is being weaponized. Absolutely is being weaponized. Um I want you to ask me differently because it didn't really land in terms of a way for me to answer it completely clear. So are you asking me, do I think, I'm, I'm just want you to ask me again. It's your question. Ask me differently if you don't mind. You know, I love it when you say that. Yeah. I'm asking <laughs> um, for people who feel that they're, they're too scared to ask mm-hmm. questions for they're going to be labeled as being transphobic, you know? Okay. Got you. Are they right? Are, are they are they right to feel fearful of being labeled transphobic or should they just learn how to learn better without being offensive? The latter. They should learn how to learn better without being offensive. It has been weaponized. And again, if I, I want to focus more so, and I'm so grateful for this opportunity to illustrate the idea of utilizing mechanisms of oppression. Nobody's saying that you... I'm talking about proximity to oppression and the closer, the the more you utilize systems and mechanisms of oppression that places you in closer proximity at large to the oppressors, whichever one, whoever one you want to choose. So with that being said, in this instance, we as trans folk, to me, need to start responding the same way we as Black folks respond to white people who pander and elude to the idea more times, elude to the idea of interest for information more times than actually being interested. You know as a Black person that we have told them, if you want to learn about Black folks, go to a Black community. Go get you a Black friend. Pick up a Black history book. The same way we all collectively as Black folks had to do that to be in tune with our Blackness. So at the end of the day, you want to know about the hood? Go to the hood, Karen. You want to learn something about Black folks? Go read a book about, go read some Toni Morrison. Karen, you know? So the same way we take that stance as Black folks as it relates to white people playing in our face about actually learning who we are is the same type of response that I give to cis folk more times than not because you can't manipulate me. You can't gaslight me. If you want to know, go down to the spots. If you want to know, be kind and not root your line of questioning in divisiveness. Because I think that that's where it becomes, the idea of transphobia becomes weaponized because people don't, we're invalidated in their lower chakra, in their gut. They see us as men. So their line of questioning is not to get to know 
and honor and or celebrate what I am, it's to, well, because you, to celebrate what I am because you have an interest in that part of humanity, you're interested to learn my nuts and bolts and screws so that you can then attempt to reprogram. And that's where it becomes weaponized. So I think if people have actual interest that they, they should focus on harnessing and maintaining measurably relationships with people who can atone for the experiences of trans and trans people alike. I like that. I, I see what you did there too. I thought that was real smart, but that's cool. We're going to let the other people try to catch up with that later on. Cause I see what you did there. It's, all, it's totally fine. It's totally fine. My my last question is what does, what, where does Bayshade see herself as far as being in your blackness and everything that you spoke on in this whole podcast and everything you've been speaking on in the past, where do you see yourself moving forward as far as that voice? Can you be a little bit more specific? Professionally, personally, all of it. Whichever way you feel comfortable about expressing. My voice largely these days is rooted in actual lived-in experiences because that can't be debated. Okay? I'm radical with my life. My voice grows with access. So as I am loved and celebrated and accepted by guys who I date's mother. That's protest. As I am seen as valuable enough to be out in the daytime with, even if some people can identify me as transness, but with a man who loves me or with a group of cis women, women who love me and, and, and the world is able to see space etched out being taken up is protest. I'm going to be a wife. That's going to be protest. I'm going to be a mother. That's going to be protest. In terms of actual professional goals or positioning, I see myself probably in radio. I see myself probably maybe writing because I want to go as far as I can go without becoming a martyr. Okay. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to die for this shit. Sorry. <laughs> I I don't want to die, you know. Like I, I'm I'm not I'm not there with it. So a lot of where I am is I want to be able to forge and use my voice in ways that are safe and that are not too harmful to systems that are systemically marginalizing us all as Black folk. So I don't really know exactly where I'll be headed professionally because to a certain degree, my positioning at this point is open-ended and I almost come to you with the resume of life to where wherever I end up, it's almost like a person has to create a position for me because no position is that's that's already written is for Beishade, you know? So I'm currently um, the acting communications, well, not even acting, but I'm in that position um, as a communication strategist for Banji Boombox under the mothership. We have the festival coming up August 5th on Governor's Island. Um, so I think that this will be a great stage, literally and figuratively, to package myself as being formidable as being able and as having the innate ability to land a thought in a mass production type of way. So I don't really know, and I try not to put too many ideas on myself. You know, I'm not religious, but I do believe in logic behind some things. And you know the statement, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. So that's why I said I really focused a lot on getting up every day and feeding into my lived-in experience in womanhood. That is protest. Joy is a form of protest. Wealth is a form of protest. You know, smiling and existing in forward movement, moving ways. So that's really all I can promise you and promise 
people who support me is that I'm committed to forward movement. I'm committed to growth um, in non-erasure ways. I don't want to get in nobody's way. I don't want to step on anybody's toes. I want what's for me. Because what God got for me, can't nobody touch it or take it. Not even myself. I love it. I love it. I, I just want to say thank you again. I, I see somewhere in the future some sort of podcast TV. I know we're going to be seeing a lot of you. I just want to be able to kind of pull rank and say I, I saw her first. You know what I'm saying? So I appreciate the opportunity okay, that you came on here. I, I feel it. Also, too, we always let first-time guests know, you know, listen, anytime you want to come over here to talk about something specific, anything come up, just hit us up, let us know. You come over here, you bring a guest, you let us know if we want to bring something to light, because that's all that we're about, because for us, Blackness is everything, and we always are trying to push forward that interpretation. So, you know, you have an open door, you got my line. Please, please hit me up. Let me know how we can always help you. You know, personally, I told you anyway, and I'm telling you again publicly, anything you need from me, you know, just let me know. It's within my power. You know what I'm saying? I got you on that, because, you know, we got to hold each other down, 313. So, you know how I feel about that. You know how I feel about that. So, that's real. So I appreciate um let people know how they can get in contact with you. I uh, yeah. Firstly, I want to thank you as well though. You know, it's definitely been a joy meeting you, working with you now twice. And there's this energy that just flows and feels great. So I just wanna highlight that publicly as well because it's rare. That's first of all. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Team Baby Hair, you can follow me on TikTok at Team Baby Hair. And find me on YouTube, on my YouTube channel at Beishade. I have kind of scratched majority of my content on YouTube and left it really centered around the nuances that exist with the battle between trans women and cis women right now. So a lot of my work currently is centered around activism. Um, but yeah, you can find me on YouTube under Beishade and Team Baby Hair on every other social platform. Team Baby Hair. That's what's up. <laughs> appreciate yeah. you. Um, <laughs> as usual, we appreciate you. You can follow me on any social media platform at Jayhaw Society. Um, you can make sure you check out the History of Being Black podcast on anywhere where podcasts are. We're on Spotify. We're on Apple. We're on all those other things. Make sure you follow History of Being Black on IG. Make sure you follow me and Orion on IG also as well. And as usual, I feel like my blackness has been elevated. Beishade, has your blackness been elevated? It definitely has. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Much appreciate you. We appreciate you. As usual, be blessed, successful, and we'll talk to you soon. We ghost. The History of Being Black is hosted by Jay Hall. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcast. Find the History of Being Black podcast on IG at The History of Being Black. Follow the Mean O'Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O'Line Media. Get the Mean O'Line Media app in the App Store or on Google Play. The History of Being Black podcast is a Mean O'Line Media production.